Hello. Good morning. I'm always curious when I speak places how many people I'm talking to. So if you're here this morning, would you raise your hand? That's about uh, a third of you. Okay. That's going to be tough. There is free coffee, right? What more can you do, Rich? I don't know. Um, no, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, and thank you, Rich, for inviting me to be here because you don't know what I'm going to say. It's, it could be bad. So thank you for trusting me because I'm going to freak some people out now. I'm sorry. Um, no, I, uh, it is a pleasure to be here, and I want to thank Steve for the, for the Fleetwood Mac rave up in the beginning. And if you guys pay attention, he said, should we do any special music or something? And I said, yeah, Fleetwood Mac, Super Tramp, ELO, you know, like Foghat. Some good. I was goofing around with him, and he actually did it. That's very impressive. That's, that's a beautiful, you guys are hip. Did I mention that? You guys are very hip. Um, anyway, I really enjoyed the Super Tramp, so thank you. Um, uh, and I also enjoy the, the goldfish thing here. I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about that. In a second, oh man, I, um, let me tell you real quick about Socrates in the City, just so you understand what that is. It is a um, speaker series. I felt that living in Manhattan in particular, uh, and you guys know life is like this, but especially in the Manhattan world, it's sort of, people aren't very thoughtful. They don't really think about the big questions of life. They're too busy going for the brass ring or whatever it is they're looking for. And the big questions of life, who am I? What's the meaning of life? Is there a God? Who is God? Can I know God? Um, where am I going? Where do I come from? Like all those big questions, some having to do with God, some not about life and meaning. People tend not to ask those questions once they get like past college. And um, I thought, you know, it wouldn't be a bad idea to have a speaker series in Manhattan because I've read so many amazing books by so many amazing people and I know so many amazing speakers and just bring them to a place and just have them talk on the big questions of life and it's been amazing and, and rich has come to a, a ton of them that's how we got to know each other and michael hottie does the sound for it and um anyway so that's kind of what what i do and i'm also uh, a writer uh and so i work i work out of my home um but i wanted to tell you before i get into my life story which is really why i'm here it's to tell you why i'm limping up here because everybody asks me and it gets really tiring telling everyone so i'm going to do like a one-size-fits-all thing is that is that okay It's like people say, like, oh, man, like, you did, you know, did it happen skiing or whatever? It's like, no, it's not on my budget to go skiing this season. So I decided to, to, to break my leg, like, on 74th Street and Lexington Avenue, where I live. Instead of, like, driving all the way, you know, whatever, and ski boots and going up the mountain and $70 lift tickets, I could, like, do it right there. And why not, you know? And um, I thought it sounded like a good deal to me, right? And it's actually time-saving, you know? It's like you save three days. So, um... So actually, this is true. Uh, when it snowed the other day, do you guys remember the snow? I know some of you remember the snow because you were not here last Sunday. Yeah, that's right. That's very wimpy. I went to church last Sunday. We took the bus down Lexington. Um, but I, I, uh, I, I got sort of exuberant. Snow makes me exuberant. I like snow. And um, I, was, um, I had a bunch of shirts to take to the dry cleaners. Uh, and... Um, there was this huge mountain of snow between me and the, and the dry cleaners. I could have gone around it, but the snow was making me feel exuberant. And uh, I leapt over, or as we writers say, or the snow. And um, you with me on that? There's an apostrophe, no V. You understand that? V understood, right? That's the writing kind of thing that I do, because uh, I write poetry. So I leapt or the snow, and... Um, but the bummer was, as I came up over this huge pocket, believe me, it was like one of those, you know, like when people do the triple jump, it's like the jump, jump, whoa, and the third jump, it was kind of like that to get over this thing. And the, I, I realized 
when it was too late that there was no snow where I was leaping. It was like I, I leapt over the snow and then the other side there was, you know, you expect there's going to be more snow. There was just like a, just a tiny bit of ice and asphalt. And so my the entire weight of my body came down. And of course, awkwardly, because I'm holding a ton of dry cleaning. You don't, you don't, you know, you're not, you're not as agile when you're holding a ton of dry cleaning. And um, I landed on my foot wrong and fell down. I think about this, especially like adults, like falling down in the street. It's a little embarrassing. And uh, some maintenance guys are like laughing at me, like, check it out, man. And um, I got up and basically I broke my fifth metatarsal. I don't mean it's the fifth time I've broken my metatarsal. I mean, my fifth metatarsal was broken by me when I fell. And uh, how many people have a metatarsal? I'm just checking it out here. How many people? Right. How many, how many of you guys have two? You should get two. You're really entitled to two. It's more symmetrical. But I broke it, and uh, that, that's why I'm here. But I want to tell you something. You think this is like kind of weird, but it was a huge mountain of snow, and it lasted for two days. So if you go there now, you'd be like, Eric's making this up. But it's, it was huge. And this was just the other day, as you know. It was like Tuesday or whatever, and it's melted. But it was huge and dangerous while I was there. And the locals up on 74th Street, the locals, for, for, for the time that it lasted, they actually called it Brokefoot Mountain. That's true. No, that's true. Seriously. All right. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. It's, you've been great. Thank you. Uh, it's, uh, I know it's gone now, so I, I should have taken a picture. It was there. It was big and dangerous. Um, but anyway, my wife said, you should tell, just tell everybody that, that uh, Vice President Cheney shot you. And I, I don't know. It's, uh, it's kind of a scary thing. But uh, that would be more plausible, right? You'd say, look, well, that makes sense, you know. But, uh, um, but anyway... So, uh, so, so that's why I, I broke my foot, and I feel like an idiot. But here I am now with the foot, and I have to go to, to, to Nashville to speak uh, next week at all these places. Like, I, I, did, I decided to, to do all the speaking when I'm limping. Like, it just gives me a couple of cheap jokes to open up with. That was really the plan, so we, we, we did that. But I wanted to tell you um, my life story that goes in w- with what Steve was, was saying. This is going to take, like, two hours, but um, I think I can do it. In under 145, so hang with me. It's gonna be it's gonna be long. No, it's I'll give you the very quick version. Basically, um, uh, I was uh, let's see. My, my parents. I gotta start from the beginning. My parents uh, are European immigrants. That means they came here from Europe in the 50s. My my dad came from Greece, uh, hence my surname Metaxas. Right. My mom came from Germany, uh, hence my love for Siegfried and Roy. And why do you laugh at that? It's really, it's really Roy, to be perfectly accurate, but, um, but that's where that comes from. No, but so I was raised in the Greek Orthodox Church. You know, if there's a, it's kind of like there's, if there's a Greek and a non-Greek and they get married, it's like everything becomes Greek. That's just the way, it's like, it's like the dominant gene. Like you have to be, you know, I have to be Greek. It's very important to, to Greeks growing up. So I was raised in the Greek Orthodox Church, and as I said to the uh, earlier service, the Greek Orthodox Church is so churchy, it makes the Catholic Church look like this church. Does that, does that make sense? Like it's intense, like super religious stuff, whatever, a lot of stuff, a lot of trappings, loads of trappings. And anyway, uh, it can be good. The theology is good, but the reality of it is like super, I don't know. So I was, a, I was a good kid. I was raised in the Greek Orthodox Church, and I went to church every Sunday, was an altar boy. I never really disagreed with anything. It it's all sounded good, and you know, but it never really penetrated. Never, I was just kind of showing up because this is what my father made me you know, go to church because that's what Greeks do. And... Um, the Greek thing, the Greek identity, the cultural identity is hugely important. Some of you have grown up in different ethnic identities and whatever. And 
I always sort of envied my really American friends because they didn't have that baggage. But it was like being Greek is like you're Greek. It's you know, and it was kind of like you know, Greek, Greeks are it's the master race, and all Greeks know that obviously Greeks are superior. And I can you know, here, here's my, and 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 in my big, big fat Greek wedding, there's a lot of tooth where the guy says that every word is a Greek word and whatever. I mean, that's sort of not that far from the truth. My father would do that. And I remember distinctly when he would see like a fish, you know, the Christian fish on the back of a car. Have you seen those? You know what I'm talking about? Do you have one? You should. You need to have one. Um, you need to have one. So, uh, Rich, they need to have one. Um, look, you got to fly your freak flag, my friends. Put that fish on there. So, it's awesome. It's awesome. No, so I... But so, like, you know, in the late 70s, when I was, you know, growing up, my father would, say, would point out that fish. And instead of saying, you know, Eric, that's the, you know, we're Christians and that's the Christian symbol. He would say, no, that's the Greek word for fish that comes from. And he explained to me that the ancient Christians, because they were so persecuted, they couldn't have crosses or whatever. So they had the secret symbol of the fish. And some of you don't know this. The fish, the, the Greek word fish is ichthys. You've heard of ichthyologists or little tropical fish like this. They get ich. Have you heard that, right? But the Greek word for fish is ichthys. And ichthys, it's an acronym. It's you know, I'm not, I can't say the Greek letters, but the Greek letters spell out an acronym, Jesus Christ, Son of God, our Savior. So the early Christians used the symbol of the fish because they knew that the fish symbol meant Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior. But growing up, whenever my father saw those things, instead of getting all excited that it's about Jesus, it was all about the fact that it's Greek words, you know, and he was like, he was a big evangelist for Hellenism, for the Greek, uh, for the Greek culture. <laughs> So it's, it's just kind of true. So, so the, so the uh, Greek part of the Greek Orthodoxy always tends, not always, but usually tends to overwhelm the Christian stuff. So I grew up and I learned all about what it is to be Greek. And of course, that was never great because my mother was German and I felt kind of like a half-breed Samaritan type. And I never really fit in with the Greeks because we didn't speak Greek at home because my parents spoke English. So it was kind of weird. But So I grew up with that and it was really a big part of my identity. That's who I was, you know, in a sense. And um, the other part of my identity, and I need to tell you these three things, which will uh, figure into the fourth thing later. So that was number one. Number two, I had, uh, I grew, was born in Queens. All the Greeks are born in Astoria, Queens. Did you know that? If, if you're not born there, you're technically you're not Greek. So that's just, but I was, I was born in Astoria General Hospital. We have records. And um, we moved to Danbury, Connecticut. So I grew up in Danbury, Connecticut. Uh, and I spent my, my, my life, my youth, when I was, you know, whatever, young or teenage or whatever, like fishing. My friends and I, we would just like go to different lakes and ponds and whatever, we were totally into fishing and stuff. And which kept me out of trouble, right? You cannot smoke weed when you're bass fishing, for example. So, or you shouldn't. So, but so I was actually like a really good kid and I would spend, I spent a ton of time fishing and it was my whole life. And so by the time I got to college, if somebody said, so like, so what do you do, man? I'd be like, well, I'm, you know, my hobby is fishing, like bass fishing, fly fishing, whatever. That's, that was what I did, you know, hike around and, and, and fish in secret streams. And the most transgressive thing I would do is be like, you know, fishing on private land or something like that. That was really scary. So, uh, but nobody got shot. So please. Um, but I, all right, two people got shot. I'm gonna be. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lie to you. Two people got shot, but one of them had it coming. So that's it. Um, but so that was a big part of my identity. And then when I went to Yale, I went to Yale with a very open mind, which is scary, uh, dangerous, because if you have an open mind, some people might fill it with bad stuff. So you got to be careful. You know, you don't want to have an open mind that's too open. You want to filter out the bad stuff. But I kind of went there with this attitude, like, okay, now I'm gonna learn about everything. I'm gonna learn about the meaning of life. I'm gonna learn about what it is to be you know, to, to, you're going to, I'm going to, I'm here to learn. And this is the best place you could come to Yale. It's like this great place. 
And so, so I was there and just kind of trying to take this stuff in. And I was on the, I, I edited the Yale Humor magazine, which was great. And I was in a couple of musicals and I had some fun, whatever. But basically, I, I was imbibing, imbibing, that means drinking in. Um, sorry, I know. Uh, I'm, I'm an English major. I like to say imbibing. Um, imbibing. Um, imbibing. Uh, okay, uh, that's enough. So uh, I was taking in the, in a sense, what, how do I call it? It's like it's in the drinking water. It's like when you go to a place, you can kinda, you're kind of picking up how the people think, right? You sort of pick it. And I was really, I didn't know what I thought. So I kind of went there open-minded. Yale's symbol is Lux et Veritas, which means $27,000 a year. And no, that's not true. Uh, actually, it's more now. But uh, the, the, the symbol is light and truth. And I thought, I want to learn about truth. What is truth? And, you know, so I was really into it and stuff. And, but what I picked up in a way, and it never gets said, it's just sort of in the drinking water, as I say, it's just in the oxygen in the room, is that, you know, like the people, the really successful people, the people who really make it in whatever it is, in, 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 in the world of writing or publishing or in the world of acting or the media or whatever you're going into, those people know that, you know, that these questions actually have no answers. Like that the sophisticated answer is that, like, there's no answer, basically. And the people who say that they have an answer, who say, like, Jesus is the answer or I love God, I believe in the Bible or whatever, like that whole thing is, like, exclusivist and fundamentalist kind of and uncomfortable. And, and, and we need to be beyond that. And those of us who really know what's going on, we're, we're way beyond that kind of parochial stuff, that divisive stuff. We have some kind of larger truth or whatever. And, and then, but we never really talk about what that is. It's just about, you know, don't hurt other people and like make a lot of money and die. So that, that's actually, that's really a false synopsis. I shouldn't say that, but it's kind of like you pick up that the, the, there is no answer. And to really look for that answer is a little, uh, it's day class A. You just, you act the way the other successful people act, and, and you just do what you do. And if you want to go to church, that's, that's cool. Just don't go to one of those churches, you know, but just whatever. And so I, I really picked all this stuff up because I was looking for what is the meaning of life. And um, I remember I came up with this image. It was, it was, uh, I took a lot of, you know, philosophy and literature, and I came up with this literary image, which to me summed up what this all kind of amounted to. I, I was trying to make some sense of world religions and stuff. And, you know, in my spare time, I was going to do that. And um, I came up with this image of like a frozen lake, okay? A lake, frozen lake, uh, with this kind of like Jungian, Freudian idea. Like he, some of you know that uh, the, Freud has this image of the soul, right? Whereas there's the conscious mind, which we're all using right now. It's the conscious mind. Some, some of us are using right now. And uh, the, the, you, yeah, you. And, uh, are using the conscious mind, but there's also this huge unconscious, right? If you read, you know, Finnegan's Wake, where it's this vast, mysterious unconscious in your mind, you know, and, and we, we all recognize there's, there's some truth to that, right? There's this idea of this huge, uh, whatever, well, when you're dreaming, your unconscious is, you know. Re- so I like that image, this, this image of this, of this unconscious. And then Jung, uh, is it Carl Gustav Jung? Somebody correct me. Is it Carl Gustav? It's Jung. Um, anyway, uh, Jung came up with this idea that God is what he called the collective unconscious. And I sort of like that idea. It's sort of this, it's vague, but it was interesting to me. This idea that we all have this unconscious mind and that somehow the collective unconscious of all of humanity, that's what God is. So it's kind of like saying we're God, but it's kind of, I didn't really get it, but I like this idea. And it, the model of that God is a very, it's kind of like a new age, kind of Eastern thing where it's basically saying that 
Um, God is not a personal God. It's kind of this energy force. It's this sort of, it's, it's, it's something that it's not, it's not personal. It's just, this is like an energy force, which is this collective unconscious. And anyway, the point is that I thought, okay, this makes sense to me. So, so I came up with this image of a frozen lake and the, the goal of life I thought was, okay, sort of to drill through the ice, which is the conscious mind to touch the water, which is the collective unconscious. And that's kind of what all world religions seem to be getting at. That was, this was this idea that I had. So I thought that that's the goal of life, is to drill through the ice and to touch this water, which is this collective unconscious energy force, God thing, whatever. Um, I didn't know how to do that, uh, but uh, it was a nice idea. So I graduated and I decided I wanted, you know, I wanted to be a writer, and I floundered very, very badly. And then I took uh, stock of the situation, and then I continued to flounder very, very badly. Um, uh, and then um, I, st- I tried to stop floundering, but continued floundering nonetheless. And it was, it was bad. And it was so bad that I eventually moved in with my parents, which, uh, let me just say, don't, don't do that. If, if, you, if you're thinking about doing that, you need to run. There's, uh, there's safe houses. You, can, uh, you, you don't need to... No, but what, what happened was it's very bad when a 24-year-old guy who has these ideas about being a writer, okay, these inchoate ideas of being a writer but doesn't know exactly how to get there, moves in with his European immigrant parents because they do not have any patience for this nonsense. Their advice is get a job. We put you through Yale University. You need to get a job and start contributing and supporting us because what do you, why do you think we put you through Yale? And uh, they, you laugh, but this is true. This was true. So, so imagine like you're, you're, you know, you're, you're confused, freaked out, 24-year-old, moving back with your parents, and they're like, hey, hey, there's no confusion here. We're, you know, it, was very, it was very harsh. It was very, very harsh. And I went through a year of, I mean, I can joke about it now, but it was, I was really suffering. I mean, I've, all, I've suffered from depression uh, my whole life, I still struggle with it mightily now, no question. And at that time, it was really hard. That year was the first time in my life I'd experienced sort of, you know, uh, week after week, month after month of like, I'm bummed. I don't want to be here. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not like a suicidal person, but I was definitely like willing to leave if somebody could like just say, here, go there. I was, I was really having a hard time. And my parents obviously uh, were not helping. You know, they, they were doing the best they could. But I, things got so bad that I took a job as a proofreader at Union Carbide in Danbury, Connecticut. Yeah, excuse me, that's hell, by the way. Uh, I, was, uh, I had, had a desk that was a quarter of a mile from the nearest window, right? Because fresh air is, is evil. You cannot control fresh air. So you need to have a control thing. And, and I, can you imagine, like, I'm, I'm a writer. I want to write, you know, short stories for The New Yorker or whatever. And here I am in this cubicle reading lines of, like, chemical symbols and whatever. It was unpleasant. It was very unpleasant. And um, so I'm living at home. I had terrible, you know, girl trouble. My girlfriend was up in Boston, and that was suddenly not working out. And I was very, 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 uh, what's the Aramaic word for miserable? What is that? I think it's close to miserable. It was miserable. Uh, and I just was... Um, I was so bummed. But at this job, I met a guy who was, you know, a, uh, he was an Episcopalian, so I was, like, willing to talk to him because it was, like, a mainstream church kind of thing. But he was obviously one of those super born-again Christian, like, Jesus freak guys who knew the Bible backwards and forwards. And this is really nutty. He actually, like, believed the whole thing. Can you imagine? Yeah, he believed it. He took it literally. It's crazy. It's crazy. So, um, so I thought, 
I, I, I like, I, like, I want to talk to this guy. I want to ask him some questions. Cause like, I'm a, I'm a Christian, aren't I? I think I'm a, I'm a Christian. You know, I never rejected that. I just, but I want to talk to him. And so I start talking to him and what blew my mind was that he had answers to all these questions. I was able to get amazing answers from him. I mean, I grew up in the church and I didn't know, I realized to my embarrassment and shame, I didn't know anything basically about actual Christianity, which is amazing. I got all the religion. I got all the stuff, all this stuff, but like the reality of it, the piece of it that gives you hope and joy and life and purpose and meaning. And I didn't get any of that. And this guy clearly had that. Um, but I didn't exactly want it. I didn't know what I want. He ma- it made me uncomfortable because I was, as I say, trained at Yale that, you know, those people are insane. So, uh, so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll keep talking to him. But, you know, if he gets too close, like, nah, that's enough. Like, you'd say something like, hey, you know, we should do a Bible study at lunch, Eric. That'd be and I'd be like, nah, nah, no. I, you know, suddenly I came up with some great excuse why I couldn't. So, like, I'll keep talking, but nothing weird, man. I don't want anybody to notice that I'm talking to you. So, um, but keep talking, but, you know. And then he would say, like, hey, well, this weekend, why don't you come with, with me and my wife? We'll go, we'll go to church. I was like, oh, man, I'd love to. I can't, eh, you know, no way. That's it. So, you know, and that went on for, like, eight months. And, um, but one thing this guy said to me was, uh, you know, Eric, you should just ask God to reveal himself to you. And I thought, what a bold, kind of brassy thing. Like, I don't know that God exists, but I'm going to ask him who might not exist to reveal himself to me. And I thought, hmm. So I would go on these long jogs, um, to get away from my parents. And, uh, you know, I've never been more aerobically fit than I was. It's true. It's true. It's an extraordinary thing. The human body can do a lot of things when it's running from pain. It's, a, it's an amazing... It's, you, you'll surprise yourself. So, I, um, so, like, yeah, 12 miles from home, I would stop. And, um, and, and once in a while, I would sort of, like, look up and sort of do this, you know, gingerly kind of prayer thing. Like, okay, God, if, you know, if you're there... Um, you, maybe you could show yourself to me. And it was weird because I, I felt like maybe I'm just talking to the oxygen, which is so embarrassing, you know, like, I don't know if I should really pray this prayer, but so I, I would pray it now and again when I wasn't thinking too clearly, like I would just, okay, I'll do that. So I would do it. And, um, I, I still, I wanted to know, but I, I, I was sure because of, as I say, you know, I don't put this rap on Yale. It's the whole culture in a sense that tells you, you really, really, to be honest, you really cannot know. And those people who say that they know Jesus and God, and tr- like they're just, they're, it's nice for them, but it's, you can't know that you can't. And I really believed you can't know that, but I wanted to know it. And I thought if there's a God, God, you need to show yourself to me. And I, even to the point where I was thinking like, I, I would, I would be happy if Satan showed himself to me. Cause then I'd say, okay, I know this stuff is true and I'll, and I'll pick Jesus, not you. Sorry. I'm sorry. But <laughs> are you, are you with me on that? That's like a, that's like a safe bet, right? If you know that they exist, you know which one to pick, right? But I didn't believe there was anything outside the material world. And I needed God to like a punch a hole through the sheetrock and say, how you doing? You know? And, uh, how you doing? Would God say that? I don't know. But, um, but you understand what I mean. I needed that to happen. And, and I got all of this stuff. I mean, it's kind of like this book that I wrote, which is unavailable here. It's like, <laughs> there are, that's my fault. Because a broken foot, I can only carry one buck. So I'm sorry. But, uh, but, but the thing is, like, in the book, it's like, there are, just like this conversation with my friend, I had in, tons of great, I suddenly realized that this Christian faith, this, the, the reality of the Bible, whatever, it is unbelievably reasonable. I mean, it's, it's, it seems true. I mean, everything I asked him, I thought this is, I'd never heard any of this stuff, but it didn't bring me over the goal line, so to speak. It was not going to get me. I still was like, well, that's great, but God has to reveal himself to me. Now, not everybody's like that. And God reveals himself to different people in different ways. Always. That's the, it's always going to be different. 
period. But in my case, that's where I was at age 24. And around my 25th birthday, I had a dream. Um, I didn't plan it, to be honest with you. Uh, I'm not big on planning. I just let stuff happen. So I go to sleep, and the dream happened. I had this dream, and in the dream, it's an extraordinary dream. It changed my life. Uh, I was on a frozen lake in Danbury, Connecticut. Uh, It happened to be winter. You figure that out. Uh, Frozen, solid ice, right? Standing on it. And I I was on this lake, and it was one of those glorious winter days. I mean, I just sometimes I think that heaven will be like this. It was, it was the snow was, was lit up by the, 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 the sunlight, this clear sunlight shining on the ice and snow it was so beautiful and the sky was so blue. And I'm standing on this frozen lake with a friend or two and we're ice fishing, which is another thing. I just did tons of fishing, as I said. So we're ice fishing and there's this huge hole in the ice. And I look down at the hole on this glorious day and I look down in the dream at the hole and there's a fish right there. And so I reach down and I pick up the fish, you know, by the gill or whatever. I pick this fish. And it, it was a, uh, it was not a, it was not a guppy. It was not a guppy, okay? It was like a huge, I'm sorry, Steve, you did your best, I know. Um, but um, it was a huge fish, a, a pike. Some of you guys know what this is, a pike or a pickerel, which is this bronze-colored, beautiful fish. Uh, Canwood Lake, I reach down, I pick it up, and he, I'm looking at this thing. And in the sunlight, sort of, as I said, bronze-colored, in the sunlight, I'm holding this up in the dream, and the sunlight makes this fish look golden. It looked sort of, it looked golden. But then suddenly in the dream, I, I realized, no, it doesn't look golden. It actually is golden. It is a golden fish, like in a fairy tale. It's like a golden fish. It's alive, but it's, it's golden. It's, it's, it's a golden fish. And it, this all happened like in a millisecond, but I, I understood, which is, take me a moment here to explain, but I understood in a millisecond that this was Ichthus. This was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior, the golden fish. And God had taken my own symbol system and one-upped me with it, basically. And he, and it's as if he was saying to me in the dream, because I, I realized all this in the dream, that I was looking for God. I was looking, but I was looking for this sort of new age and personal God. I was looking for inert water. I thought the goal of life was to go through the ice and to touch this collective unconscious, this water, this inert water. And God was saying, no, I have something for you which is not inert and impersonal it's my son, a person, Jesus Christ. That's what you're looking for. And in the dream, I realized that God had taken my own strange little image and symbol system. And as I say, he went up me and blew my mind. And in the dream, I'm holding this golden fish and I realized this is Jesus. And I was holding it in the dream, realizing that my search was over. And as I say, it had been a very painful year for me, really painful. And I wanted to know, is there such a thing as truth? Whatever. And somehow in the dream, I just knew this was true. This wasn't a version of the truth which would make my life better or whatever. This was actually true. And I was filled with peace and joy in the dream. It was one of those things. It was like a mind-blowing thing. And I knew that Jesus had come from the other side. And it's like, think of it theologically. Like, he doesn't jump out. Like, he's just there. And you reach down and you decide, okay, you know. I'll... And I was flooded, as I say, with joy in this, in this dream. So I woke up the next morning and went to Union Carbide <laughs> to, to proofread. Great job, great job. And um, I, uh, I met my friend, you know, and he said, well, Eric, what, uh, 
you know, I, I said, I want to tell you about this dream. And he said, okay, well, you know, so I tell him about this dream. He says, well, what, what does that mean? Like I didn't unpack the whole thing for him. Uh, and I said to him something that I would have never, ever said until that moment, um, ever. I said to him, it means that I've accepted Jesus. And I meant it. And I knew that I actually had, that it was true. And it was as if I had gone to bed single and woke up married. That's like mixed. That's like a mixed laughter thing. Like some people are, are thinking like, yeah, that's cool. And other people are like, oh man, wow. This. No, I mean it. Well, it's kind of funny because I, in a way I do mean it in both ways in the sense that, you know, when you're married, you're married. And when, G, you know, in other words, I woke, I went to bed not knowing. It's kind of like, I don't know how I feel about this girl. I don't know. And I'm really in love with her. I hate her. Whatever. But you're single. You're, you're just, but then when you get married, it doesn't matter how you feel about her today. You're married, right? And you're equally married when you hate each other and in a horrible argument as when you're madly romantically in love. You are equally married, totally equally married. There's no continuum. And it was kind of the same with God. Like God comes into your life and there are days when I am madly in love with Jesus. It's beautiful. It's so beautiful. But there are, it's been 17 years now. There are many days where that is not the case, where it's a struggle, where I I can't see him. I'm suffering because of something's not going right, whatever. But I'm equally married. My relationship with him is equally real. Like we are together. He is in my life. And, and it's an, that's an amazing reality. But so that was 17 and a half years ago. And my life since then has been without question filled with meaning. The thing that I was looking for that I didn't know you could have, didn't know that it existed, uh, does exist. And it came into my life and I have been walking with Jesus. As I say, sometimes arm in arm singing other times like, okay, I know, I know you're there, but I'm just not into talking right now. And you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but he's always been with me and my life has been totally different. And it's been this outrageous adventure. And the point of the story, and I do have one as Ellen DeGeneres says, and I do have one, um, is that look at how individual, I mean, that dream would not mean anything to anybody, but what, what I call the secret vocabulary of my heart, my life, the Greek thing, the fishing thing, the pretentious Yale Freud Jung thing woven together and served up babing with this flip this th- that just blew my mind. God knew my heart. He knew, my, he knew the circumstances of every detail of my life and wanted to reach me so badly because he loved me so badly that he found a way to speak to me that would make sense to me. And he chose to use a dream because that's how he had to get to me. And he blew my mind and he came into my life. And I know that I am not any different than anyone. That God desires to speak to you and to everyone without any question. Absolutely as clearly and lovingly and as individualistically as he spoke to me. He wants to speak to you however he needs to speak to you. He knows how to get to you. He loves you. He knows every detail of our disappointments, every nook and cranny of our lives, every horror that you try to keep away. He, know, he knows it all. He was there. He created us. And the whole goal of our life is to know him and to walk with him. It's almost like you can't be you. If you want to be, if you want to really be you, you need to let him in and he can show you who you are. That's what's amazing. And I can say from personal experience, that was the case with me. And, um, Life can still be difficult, but it's a whole different level of reality. It's kind of like when a kid 
falls and skins his or her knee, right? And they run to the parent and they hug the parent. Like, this, the wound is exactly the same, right? It's the, but somehow, hugging the parent changes everything. If there's no parent, it, it's a whole... That's what it is walking with God. But I realize that if he wants to speak to me that way, then surely he wants to speak to every single person individually that way. And so what I want to say is that he, he does know you, and he desires to know you more than you ever desire to know him. More than, in other words, you, if you're looking for truth or meaning, he desires to find a way to give that to you more than you want it. Let me put it that way. Uh, he wants to come and get you, but God is a gentleman. He will not force himself on you. It's up to you to say, okay, okay. And I know that he wants your life to be filled with meaning. This is, this is the thing I think that... Uh, is so beautiful to me is that every human every human being's life is a story is an adventure when you when you walk with god he has an adventure for you which is on par with any epic battle any story if you read lord of the rings whatever your life i assure you it does not matter who you are is meant to be as filled with meaning as any, anything like that. That's what he has for every single person. There is no question about that. All we have to do is let him uh, walk with us, and he will, he will show us what that is. Uh, so I invite you to do that uh, as you can. I'm going to just want to close um, with a prayer. Can I, can I do that? Okay. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you with our hurts, Lord, with our brokenness, with our questions, with our anger, Lord God, we come to you and we ask you, Father God, in the name of Jesus, Lord, to speak to our hearts. Speak to our hearts in a way that only we can hear, Lord God, because only you know that secret language of our life. Only you know what we have seen and experienced. Only you know those things and only you know what you're going to do with those things, what beautiful thing you're going to make of our sufferings, of our difficulties, of our hopes and dreams. Only you know, and only you are able to use those things to create something beyond our wildest dreams. Father, I ask you now, in Jesus' name, to touch every person here, Lord God. I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would bless every person here and speak to them in a way that they can hear, because you love them, Father. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Amen. Thank you.